So we're reading from Revelation 19, starting at verse 11. I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse, whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and wages war. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is the Word of God. The armies of heaven are following him, or were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Coming out of his mouth is a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has this name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And I saw an angel standing in the sun who cried in a loud voice to all the birds flying in midair, Come, gather together for the great supper of God so that you may eat the flesh of kings, generals and the mighty, of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all people, free and slave, great and small. Then I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to wage war against the rider on the, on the horse and his army. But the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet who had performed the signs on its behalf. With these signs he had deluded those who had received the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. Two of them were thrown alive into the fiery lake of burning sulphur. The rest were killed with the sword coming out of the mouth of the rider on the horse, and all the birds gorged themselves on their flesh. And I saw an angel coming down out of heaven, having the key to the abyss, and holding in his hand a great chain. He seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil, or Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. He threw him into the abyss and locked and sealed it over him to keep him from deceiving the nations any more until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be set free for a short time. I saw thrones on which were seated those who had been given authority to judge. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony about Jesus and because of the word of God. They had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy are those who share in the first resurrection. The second death has no power over them, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. Well, good evening, everybody. My name's Stuart. I'm one of the pastors here at Sorrel Revival. And um, welcome back from Week Away, those of you who've come from Week Away. And also to everybody online. Uh, tonight we have um, a sermon gap between our exegetical series. We've just finished the book of Acts and next week we're going to start the book of Ephesians. And um, there's lots of themes in Ephesians, but one of the great themes in, in Ephesians is the theme of spiritual warfare. And the big question in Ephesians is, who are we actually fighting and how do we fight as Christians? 
Uh, Paul talks about this theme in a number of places in his writings. In Galatians, he talks about the fight of faith, where we fight against our own sin. But in Ephesians, he has this theme that we are fighting against the principalities and powers of this great world. What does that mean? Well, what's good about a gap week is we can spend a bit more time to think a bit more carefully about one aspect of that so that when we come into Ephesians, that might be fresh in our minds. Now, the passage that we read tonight might seem a bit confronting, and that's because there's a picture of Jesus in Revelation 19 and 20 who has come a second time to the earth, but this time not to save but to judge. And it's quite a confronting passage when you look at the, um, uh, the imagery that you see there. And um, I think that imagery of a rider on a white horse is it might conjure up all sorts of thoughts for you. Now, um, I'm just getting my notes ready because I was just at a party this afternoon for Dr. Bonamy from Guy Anglican Church who's just celebrated his 101st birthday. So I've, I've just rushed straight here. So I'm just getting my notes all sorted out uh, just here. But um, what I want to start with tonight, I'm right now, so that's good. Uh, what I want to start with tonight is I want to ask you, what, what comes to your mind when you think of a rider on a pale horse? Now, if I was to ask um, particularly blokes my age, you may actually say it sounds a bit like a Western movie. Now, for all of you who say that I bore you with Cronulla analogies and sporting analogies, it's a bit of a fresh one tonight, but I'm sorry for most of you because it's probably something that you're not relating to either, which is Wild West Outlaws. But basically what comes to my mind every time I hear that read is Wyatt Earp's Vendetta Ride. Now you probably don't even know who, who hands up if you've heard of Wyatt Earp. Oh, a few people, okay. Hands up if you've never heard of Wyatt Earp. Hands up if you don't care who Wyatt Earp is. I kid you not, you will care after today. You will care. <laughs> Let me tell you why. I think of Wyatt Earp when I hear this uh, rider riding at the head of what sounds like a heavenly posse to sort out injustice and to put everything right. Let me tell you what I mean. To help you to understand this, I want to take you back to October 26, 1881. Now, Brad and I love a movie called Tombstone, and some of you at Week Away actually watched that movie with us. And the movie Tombstone is actually set in the Wild West in Arizona in 1881, and it's set in the context of this fight between good and evil. And the fight between good and evil is between the lawmen, the Earps, and the cowboys. Now, there's a very famous photo, the most famous shootout in the whole of Wild West history. I know it's a big call was in the Tombstone Towns uh, precinct and it was when the lawmen came to disarm some cowboys and a gunfight ensued and in 32 seconds this story was etched into the minds of Americans and I would say many Australians too through popular media at the time and then going forward into the future. At this gunfight basically what you see there is the Earps, um, White Earp, Morgan Earp, Virgil Earp and Doc Holliday. After the gunfight, Wyatt Earp was told, uh, told a reporter, uh, the reporter asked him, what did you learn at this gunfight? And he said, never take a drunk dentist to a gunfight. Well, Doc Holliday was a dentist and he'd have it a few whiskies at the Crystal Palace before the gunfight and he's like, right, let's sort these cowboys out. These cowboys had been robbing stages, they'd been killing people, they'd been stealing cattle and the lawmen are right, like, we're going to stop this. So four men walked down Allen Street 
turn around the corner, not into the OK Corral, but two doors down from the OK Corral. It doesn't sound as good, does it, gunfight at the two doors down from the OK Corral? So you probably heard that, though. Hands up if you heard that phrase. You heard of the OK Corral? Not many people. Yeah, true. OK, this is going really well. So <laughs> what happens is White Earp and Doc Holliday and, and, and the Earps are standing so close that Doc Holliday pushes one of the Clantons with his gun. That's how close they were to each other. And they're all standing there. And Virgil, who's the town sheriff, says, I don't want this to happen. I want your guns. Throw your hands up. But then they hear Doc Holliday click his shotgun <laughs> and all hell breaks loose. Hence the saying, don't take a drunk dentist to a gunfight. Because he's like, well, bring it on. So he, they fire and they fire and all this. Everyone falls down except for Wyatt Earp, who has six bullets in his clothes, bullet holes. But he doesn't get hit. Billy Clanton, Tom Clanton are dead on the ground. Frank McClory is also dead. What's happened is, this is the beginning of saying to these cowboys, we are going to actually stop you guys from terrorising the town. And a war begins between the cowboys and the Earps. The cowboys kill Morgan Earp and they shoot and maim Virgil Earp months later. And all of a sudden, White Earp begins to actually go on what's called the Vendetta Ride. Now, in the 1950s in America, this was popularised. Now, I've got a few photos here just to show you, but almost everybody at that time knew of those things. Now, can we just go on to the next slide, bro? So, in the 1950s, there was all sorts of movies about the OK Corral, and all of them made Wyatt Earp the hero, and the cowboys were the bad guys. Let's go to the next slide. Here's Tombstone uh, that was released in 1993, but by 1993, they've actually created a bit more of a complex story. Because there's a bit of a background to it's not just as simple as the, the you know the Wyatt Earp coming to save the town because Wyatt Earp was a bit of a not not such a great guy in himself. He used to run a brothel. He was a pimp, and he was a notorious um, cattle thief at one stage as well. Yet he was remembered from the 1950s for his rugged individualism. And in the 1950s, he was portrayed as part of this great American creation story. And all the TV channels in the 1950s had a show about Wyatt Earp by the 1950s. The gunfight of the OK Corral was the most famous and glorious gunfight in American history. And it looked like in all the movies that that gunfight was pretty much the end of the cowboy's reign. It's the climax of the story. Wyatt Earp is also a hero for post-war America where the Americans were trying to work out where their place was in the world and with the Cold War looming, there were heroes like Wyatt Earp that people could say, isn't it cool that there's someone who can actually stand up as a rugged individual and fix a problem, even take the law into his own hands? But the dark side was missed out in the 1950s. See, what happened was Wyatt Earp actually lived till 1926, and his wife, Josephine, was the one who told the story. That's actually his first Commonwealth law wife, Maddie. Leave it on that screen for a sec. Now, Josephine was his second wife, and she didn't want the backstory of Wyatt Earp to be told, and that's why a lot of people in the 50s didn't know the actual other side of Wyatt Earp. But in the, nine, in, in the actual story, Maddie and Wyatt moved to Tombstone together, but then Wyatt has an affair with the next lady that's on the screen. This is Josephine. We think it's her. And she was, um, various people say various things about her, but she basically was in love with and the Commonwealth life of one of the sheriffs who was on the side of the cowboys. And she was also the reason that Wyatt Earp's marriage broke up. 
So in all the retellings of the story, she never told anybody that, and that's why in the 1950s you get this superhero version of Wyatt Earp. But by the time we get to 1993, you actually start seeing historians are unpacking the story and see that it's a bit more complicated. That basically Josephine broke up a marriage and then Maddie, his first wife, was abandoned by Wyatt and actually become a drug addict and committed suicide. And her last words apparently were, Wyatt Earp ruined my life. So you can see that the real story is a little bit more complicated. But in the search of a hero, sometimes we don't like to hear the messy side of things. Next slide, please, guys. That's Wyatt Earp in his old age, which is a fascinating story, and that's his wife, Josephine, just there. Next slide. So what I think is happening in this story is there's a desire for a heavenly warrior, someone who can come and save us from our problems. And I think what's really interesting about Wyatt Earp is Wyatt himself wanted to create the myth about himself. Apparently he used to love in his old age going to Western movies to see movies about the time that he used to be a cowboy himself. And in, but obviously he didn't live until 1993 where the story of uh, Maddie and Josephine actually gets told a little bit more clearly. What you also don't see is some of the, um, in the earlier movies, is some of the biblical imagery that we can sometimes put around some of these stories in our culture. Remember in the 1950s, America and Australia are still predominantly influenced by a Christian narrative, right? And so what's happening in the movies right up until the 90s is people are still trying to draw biblical imagery around some of these characters to help us to make sense of them. And I want to make the thought today that I think that Wyatt Earp is kind of like a Christ-like figure. He's the one who's going to come in like Jesus, but this time not as a saviour, but as the heavenly warrior on a horse, the heavenly warrior of Revelation 19. And it's interesting in the movie Tombstone that at the beginning of the movie, when we're first introduced to the cowboys, you get this horrible scene where the cowboys come to a church and there's a wedding and they basically kill everyone in the church and at the wedding. And there's a priest there who yells out in pain and anguish at the injustice of these cowboys and what they've done to his village. He says, beware of the pale rider who rides the white horse. He will come, something like that in Spanish. And what he's directly referencing is the revelation image of the Son of Man, Jesus Christ, who will come back again on a vengeance ride. And the, the cowboys all laugh and go, oh, isn't that funny? But it's interesting, after the cowboys kill Morgan and injure Virgil, Wyatt kind of loses it. And there's this scene in the movie where he goes, tell them I'm coming, I'm riding a horse. Tell them I'm coming and hell comes with me. It's a great line for a cowboy movie. But it's actually a distortion of the actual narrative, isn't it? Because Jesus doesn't bring hell with him. He brings heaven's justice with him. See the difference there? So what we do in our popular culture is sometimes we mix Christianity with other themes. And sometimes they get adjusted. Wyatt is a Christ-like figure, but he's not the only one in the movies that's like that. Has anyone here heard of Clint Eastwood? You might have heard of him if you haven't heard it yet. A few younger people have heard of Clint Eastwood. There's a movie called Pale Rider. Pale Rider is exactly the same thing. A guy comes into town, he's almost invincible, and then he makes the town okay again. So there's this myth that goes through a lot of our movies. You might want to stop for a second and think, is that that kind of idea in Marvel movies? Well, it kind of is, isn't it? 
you still get this Marvel character, Thor comes in and fixes everything or whatever. There's still this rugged individualism. There's still this ability of this heavenly warrior to come in with his posse and make everything right. But what is the heavenly warrior of chapter 19? Well, let's go to Revelation chapter 19, verse 11 to 16 and have another look at it. John has a vision of heaven in verse 11. He sees heaven standing open and before him is a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. Now, the only one who is faithful and true is Jesus Christ. So unlike the conflicted character of Wyatt Earp, Jesus is actually a perfect person to come and deal with injustice. His eyes are like blazing fire and on his head are many crowns. His name is written on him and no one knows but himself and he's dressed in a robe dipped in blood and his name is the word of God. So if any doubt that it is Jesus, verse 13 helps us, his robe being dipped in blood is actually not the blood of his enemies, it's actually a symbol of the blood he shed on behalf of the human race so that he could save us. And also the fact that he's called the word of God, we remember John's first gospel where he calls Jesus the word of God, became flesh, remember that? So here we have Jesus riding on a horse. Coming out of his mouth though is a sharp sword which will strike down the nations. Now this is really interesting because a couple of, quite a few months ago we talked about Joshua and we're talking about in Joshua, the Old Testament book Joshua, about King Joshua as he was going on his um, way, that there was um, salvation and judgment all the time in that narrative. And we talked about the fact that in the Old Testament, God is always extending the hand of salvation to save people from the coming judgment. And by the time we get to the New Testament, we see that Jesus himself has given himself for judgment so that he may actually pay for our sins so that we can be saved. So all those stories get fulfilled in Jesus. But here this is interesting, verse 15, there's a sharp sword which is coming out of his mouth that will strike down the nations. Now I want to say that I don't think it's just judgment in a sense because the sword that comes out of his mouth is actually really interestingly the sword of the word of God. It's a symbol in the Bible of the word of God. And when we get to Ephesians, we're going to get to chapter 6 and we're going to see the armour of God that we're supposed to put on when we fight the spiritual battles and part of that armour is the sword and Paul says, sorry, yeah, Paul says in Ephesians that the sword is the word of God. So the word coming out of his mouth is two-edged and a two-edged sword symbolises the fact that there is salvation and there is judgement coming from the mouth of the Lord but there will be a time where the time for salvation has come to an end and so the terrifying thing in this uh, passage is He's coming to strike down the nations in judgment if they haven't repented of their sin. He'll rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of God Almighty. Now, that doesn't seem to be my picture of Sunday school Jesus. This is wide Earp Jesus. This is Jesus on a vendetta ride. This is Jesus coming to strike down the cowboys for all their wrong that they've perpetrated and defend the town and rid the town of all the evil. We don't feel comfortable hearing Jesus holding an iron scepter that is going to rule the nations and strike down those. But look what it says in verse 16. On his robe, on his thigh, has his name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Before we get too disturbed with the judgment of God, let's go back to Mark chapter 1, verse 15, and remember the kingdom theme that runs through the whole of the Bible and comes to a climax in Revelation 19. Mark chapter 1, verse 15, The time has come, Jesus said, the kingdom of God has come near, repent and believe the good news. The great news is that every day the sun comes up, and I saw some of you outside today admiring the sun going down, 
the good news is we're pretty sure it's going to come up again tomorrow, don't we? And every new day that it comes up is another day that people have time to believe and repent. And it's another day for us Christians to be able to share the gospel good news with people so they can escape the coming judgment of Jesus. And so what we see here is Jesus is staying his anger and his wrath. He's not going to click out, as we used to say in the 90s. He's not going to lose his temper as White Earp does on the Vendetta ride. No, Jesus is holding back his anger. And this is predicted in Ezekiel chapter 37, 24 to 25. Let's have a look at that because Jesus is the messianic King David. Verse 24, my servant David will be king over them and they will have one shepherd. They will follow my laws and be careful to keep my decrees. They will live in the land that I gave to my servant Jacob in the land where your ancestors lived. They and their children and their children's children will live together and David, my servant, will be the prince forever. Now the question is, does that happen on earth now or does that happen sometime in the future? Did that start when Jesus rose from the dead or does it start at a later time? Nonetheless, Jesus is king and he has come to establish his kingdom and I suppose we now live in what we could call a now-not-yet tension. The kingdom of heaven has arrived because Jesus defeated death and sin on the cross and rose to new life and is now seated at the right hand of the Father but there has been a big period of time between that and now. How do we explain all the pain and all the chaos and all the terrible things that are happening if Jesus is on his throne? Well, the good news is Revelation 19 and 20 are going to explain that. Like a lawman re-establishing order, Jesus will come to put an end to injustice. And there are going to be princes who will reign over us and say that they have more authority than even God, but one day the pale rider will come, just as that priest said. Remember the cowboys in that movie, Brad? They're all standing around laughing at the old man and, and that, it's terrible. They shoot the priest. Oh, what an idiot. They shoot him. He seems completely silly. But the idea of the movie is there is justice that comes for wickedness. And there is a consequence. And the problem is that we either are saved by Jesus or we are part of the injustice that is ongoing in this world today. Because as Ethan said really helpfully at the beginning of the service, we are still sinful as human beings and even Christians perpetrate injustice towards each other. We get selfish, we get angry, we get intolerant, we, get un we, don't, we lose our patience. And so what we need to hear tonight is that we don't stand arrogantly going, yes, I am on the side of the pale rider. What we need to understand is we, we, need, we need forgiveness too and grace and we need to be humble. What's going on in chapter 19, 17 to 20 is very detailed, but what I want to say is that the angel says to all the birds, it's time for all the mighty horses and their riders to become undone. And there's this terrible, terrifying image of all these vultures coming down and feeding on all the, the death and destruction. And in verse 19, it gets more terrifying. In verse 19, Then I saw a beast and the kings of the earth and the armies gathered together to wage war against the rider and on the horse and his army. See, what happens here, it's like the cowboys. The pale rider comes from heaven, the heavenly warrior, but the kings of this world don't want to give up their power. And Satan doesn't want to give up his power. So they fight against the Lord. So, Christian, don't be surprised if the gospel is under attack and is under siege in this world because... Forces that are arrayed against the Lord God 
the principalities and powers, Satan and his dominion, are going to array themselves against his church. They're going to fight against. They're not just going to lay down to the, the rider. Verse 20, but the beast was captured and with it the false prophet who performed the signs on his behalf. With these signs he had deluded those who had received the mark of the beast and worshipped his image and the two of them were thrown alive into the fiery lake of burning sulphur. Again, it's just so confronting, isn't it? It's not the kind of sermon you're used to hearing on a Saturday night. Come on, Stu, we've come here to be encouraged. I've had a hard week. I've got a lot of stuff to do at work and you're talking about pale riders and vendetta rides and beasts and fiery lakes and sulphur. But there is comfort here because the evil in this world is not stronger than God. Now, I was at the, at the Church of Gomer Anglican today and I sat across from Alf and Wilma Norman and they went in 1954 to be missionaries in Papua New Guinea and they went into the highlands of Papua New Guinea and they just walked out of the bush one day to a, to a particular tribe and said, hey, do you guys mind if we build a house here? And they're like, yeah, knock yourself out, build a house. And they stayed and lived amongst that, that group of people for, 20, uh, for six years until the first person became a Christian. And how it happened was a lady went to the birthing tree to have a baby and Wilma, who's a nurse, just followed her to the birthing tree. Now, in the tribe their, of their um, particular customs and, and beliefs, if a baby had a cord wrapped around its neck, they believed the devils and the spirits were trying to kill the baby, and so they thought the baby was cursed and they'd leave the baby. So this lady, sure enough, has a baby, the, the cord's wrapped around its neck, and Wilma just goes over and goes, undoes it, there's your baby. <laughs> and the lady falls on the ground, on her knees, Wilma said, and cries in thankfulness, you saved my baby. And then she wanted to know about what power Wilma had to be able to conquer the demons and the devils. And she said, I did this in the name of Jesus. And one by one, the, the whole of the highlands, one village after another, began to become Christian. As news spread across the highlands that we don't have to fear the evil spirits anymore. We don't have to live in fear. Jesus frees us from fear. And this is why they became Christians. Because the pale rider has authority over Satan and he has defeated him. Well, the question is, if Jesus has defeated Satan, what about now? Is Satan still roaming around now? Is he defeated or is he chained? Well, the answer to that is in chapter 20. I apologise because even though I love this stuff and you're probably really interested, we don't have a lot of time today. So I'm going to try and flick through this for the purpose of tonight's sermon. But remember, this is an introduction to Ephesians. This is going to help us to read Ephesians, right? So let's have a look at Revelation 20, verses 1 to 3. Then I saw an angel coming down out of heaven and having the key to the abyss and holding in his hand a great chain. He seized the, the dragon, that ancient serpent who is the devil or Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. He threw him into the abyss and locked and sealed it over him to keep him from deceiving the nations anymore until the thousand years were ended. After that... He must be set free for a short time. Now, my thought tonight for us in this sermon is if we're going to understand our place in this world as Christians, we need to understand we live in a spiritual world, not just a materialistic world. God exists, he is spirit, and there is the devil. And there are angels and there are demons. They're all real. But the question for tonight is what is this millennium telling us, this thousand years telling us about spiritual warfare? Again, this is going to be hard for me because I like talking and I don't have a lot of time and I've also got a pretty complicated thing to say, but let's see how I go. 
You ready? Strap in. There are three ways to read this passage. There is this talk of a thousand years in this passage, okay? There's three views. One's called post-millennialism. I've lost you already. The second is pre-millennialism. And the third is amillennialism. Let's go back to post-millennialism. You're going to be really stoked about this. I'm not going to go into it at all because not many people are into this anymore. But what I'll say is there's this phrase here in chapter 20 that there's a thousand years and Satan is bound for a thousand years. The question is when does that thousand years start? And post-millennialists believe or believed in the 1800s, it was very popular in Europe and in America, they believed in the 1800s that because of technological change, the world was getting better and better. And they believed the thousand years would start after the world had got really, really good. And so the Christians would work really hard to make the world a better place because that would bring the second coming on. Because the millennium is when the second coming happens. Second coming of Jesus in the millennium. So if we can build the world better, then Jesus will come back. And so a lot of Christians were engaged in civic work to try and see the coming of Jesus. But then the 20th century happened and there was the First World War and the Second World War and there was all the purges in the communist countries and people got a little less optimistic. People started to move towards a new thought called premillennialism. And the idea of premillennialism, which has historically uh, got more roots than postmillennialism because even fathers, church fathers like Justin Martyr believed in premillennialism, the idea of premillennialism is that the world is going to get worse before Jesus comes back. And you can see culturally how that's happening too, can't you? Now, in America, we are gifted with a certain kind of premillennialism called dispensational premillennialism. I'll tell you, if you want to go to work tomorrow and blow your socks off your friends, come and I'll give you these words. You write them down in your phone. What did you do on the weekend? Well, we talked about dispensational premillennialism. Don't worry about the big words for now. Basically, one view of the millennium is it gets better before the coming of Jesus. This one says the world's going to get worse. And that Jesus will return before a thousand years to reign on earth for a thousand years, literally interpreting chapter 20, verses 1 to 6. But before this, there will be a rapture and a great tribulation. Have you heard of those words before? Now, a rapture is the idea that the Christians will be taken off the earth before the great tribulation starts. The world will get worse, then Christians disappear off the earth, and then there will be um, a tribulation and then Jesus will come back. Well, in Revelation chapter 13, 16 to 18, we read this. It also forced all people, great and small, rich and poor, slave and free, to receive the mark on their heads and on their foreheads, so that they could not buy or sell unless they had the mark, which is the name of the beast and the number of its name. This calls for wisdom. Let the person who has insight calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of the man. The number is 666. Within premillennialism, the idea is the Antichrist will come and attempt to trick the church. So in premillennialism, which has a hundred-year history in America, and very and by the way, if I went to a Southern Baptist convention down in America and I didn't believe in premillennialism, they'd say I'm a liberal, I don't even believe the Bible. So I'm not necessarily going to get to a point where I'm saying what side I'm on just yet, what I'm thinking. And I don't think this should divide us. I'm just saying these are different ways of reading it, right? But let's go through this just quickly. 
The idea of this is a beast will come and people are trying to work out who this beast is. So I remember when I was growing up, Mikhail Gorbachev had a big birthmark on his head. And I remember reading a lot of people saying he is the beast because that mark on his head had been calculated to be 6.66% of the total forehead of his head. And no, it, it, it's, it's actually um, you know, understandable at one sense. People are trying to work out when's the world going to end. And so they're looking for the beast, they're looking for the mark of the beast. The other thing that I remember is people used to talk about bank cards. Maybe that's the mark of the beast. Don't get a bank card. Maybe barcodes printed on our hands could be the mark of the beast. And people are naturally going to think about it. And people still think about these things. What is the mark of the beast? But in Matthew 24, 36, Jesus says, But about the day or hour of the second coming, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. So I remember when I was young and I was reading all these different theories about when Jesus would come back and I remember my dad just said to me, Jesus doesn't even know when he's going to come back. Only God the Father is knowing that. doesn't mean we can't read signs of what's happening. And people who are into premillennialism are saying, oh, is it getting darker? Now, as I did some research, when Nero came along, people said, for sure, he's the beast. And then when, when Muhammad came along, a lot of Christians suffering persecution during Muhammad's reign said, Muhammad is the mark of the beast. He's the beast. Fast forward to Luther, a lot of Catholics thought Luther was the beast and Luther thought the popes were the beast and they were looking for the marks of the beast. And then when you go to Hitler, people thought Hitler was the beast. So you can see, can't you, that if you've got this either historical dispensational premillennialism, if the world's going to get worse, you get someone bad come along, it's like, oh, be on guard. Now that's not all a bad thing because the good thing about premillennialism is when I was thoroughly versed in premillennialism through my love of Larry Norman who wrote a song for a movie called Thief in the Night, I was really sure that I could be raptured at any minute and I had a sticker on my car that said, beware, you're driving this car at your own risk, the driver may disappear at any instant because I was fully convinced that I might just go at any instant. So it's good because you're like, I'm alive spiritually, I'm waiting for Jesus to come back. Jesus told a parable of of you know the the virgins who were holding the lamps, you know, waiting for the for the, the the bridegroom to come back, and one of the foolish ladies let the lamp go dim. She missed out because the lamp wasn't on when the bridegroom arrived. The good thing about premillennialism, it keeps your your lamp on. But but the side effect of it is it can open you up to some of these uh, scary problems as well. I was a bit scared of Mikhail Gorbachev before I thought too much about it. Now, a bit of, bit of fear about that's probably not a bad thing I might hear you say. But I was overly worried about it when I didn't have to be worried about it and it actually put me off doing other things. It was quite distracting for me because the everyday mission and discipleship of keeping my lamp on was distracted by me reading books and books and books about what are the signs of the end times. Mum and Dad had a Christian bookshop and there were plenty of different theories. There was one book that was called... Final warning. I don't know if I've got a copy there. No, I don't. Anyway, I read that book and then I read other books and other books. So that's the downside of premillennialism. And the downside of premillennialism is to this day, still people can attach certain things to this mark of the beast. Now, again, this doesn't need to divide us, but the whole issue around Donald Trump 
actually became quite a divisive issue in America. Some Christians actually said they're going to walk away from Christianity because they heard some Christians were following Donald Trump. But for some Christians, I think Donald Trump was almost like a wide herb. He was a man that had come along when the elites, the swamp, he said, I've come to drain the swamp. He was even prepared to take the law into his own hands, like Wyatt Earp as well. And there were some that were kind of comfortable with that. There are conspiracies around that which are worth talking about. Now, I think these are issues that we don't talk about in the church and we keep these hushed because we don't want to divide ourselves, but I think we should talk about it. For example, conspiracies like QAnon, what is it? Is it, is it like a new wide Earp looking for the Donald Trump to come in like wide Earp to fix all our problems? Is the vaccine the mark of the beast? Because some people say the vaccine is the mark of the beast. Now, to my ears, that sounds a little bit like Mikhail Jerp, Gorbachev and the mark of the beast stuff that I heard when I was younger. But maybe I'm wrong. Let's talk about that. I want to say briefly that in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 3, this is what we read, For the time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, they'll suit their own desires. They'll gather around them a great number of teachers who will say what the itching ears want to hear. We need to sit under God's word together and work it out together as a family. My favourite theologian is Karl Barth, and he says, The gift that the church has been given is the word of God, so that we can sit under the word of God and work it out together. Not, I think this, you think that, but what does the Bible say? And that's why I'm introducing this reading of Revelation tonight. I'm going to finish with where I've moved myself, uh, thinking about the millennium. There's another view called amillennialism. Revelation 12, 7 to 9. Then when the war broke out in heaven, Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. See that fight again? It's not just one way. It's always a fight. Don't be surprised if we get opposed, because that's part of the, the, the story. But he was not strong enough, and they lost their place in heaven. The great dragon was hurled down, the ancient serpent called the devil, or Satan, who leads the whole world astray. He was hurled down to the earth, and his angels with him. Now, a premillennial reading of that is that is yet to come. Satan will be thrown down from heaven. But I've got a couple of things to say. I actually think that's already happened. And I think it already happened because in Luke chapter 10, verse 18, Jesus says, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Now, when did Jesus say that? It was when he sent out the 72 disciples to go and tell people about the kingdom. Here's what I think is happening. Before Jesus came with the gospel, the world was enslaved by the dragon and people did not know how to be saved. And the only power that Satan has over you is your own sin. So if you get forgiven of your sin, the devil has no power over you anymore. So with that in mind, I'm thinking when Jesus sent out the disciples to go and tell people about the gospel, why did that cause Satan to fall from heaven? Because if people hear the gospel and repent of their sin and become a Christian, they don't go to hell, they go to heaven and now the Satan has no power over them. So that's already happened. And then if we go back to Revelation chapter 20, verses 1 to 3, let's read this again. And I saw the angel coming out of heaven and having the keys to the abyss and holding in his hand a great chain. He seized the dragon, the ancient serpent, who is the devil or Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. I think that already has happened. Because didn't Jesus say, I have come to bind the strong man? I've bound him. He's bound. So I think the millennium started... And the binding of Satan is that the world is no longer ignorant according to the gospel. 
Now, there are individual people and groups of people who are ignorant, and that's why there are people like Alf and Wilma Norman who go to such lengths to go to people who don't know about Jesus because as soon as they walked into that tribe, they bound the strong man. Because as soon as that tribe became a Christian, Satan had no power over them anymore. And that's why Peter says this in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8, Be alert and sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. In Revelation, John says Satan is bound because he has no power over people who've converted. And in 1 Peter 5, 8, he's saying he's like a lion still. He's scary. But if you go up close and have a look, poor old boy's got no teeth left. Because Jesus went and took a big baseball bat and knocked those teeth out like wide Earp in the Vendetta ride. He's already crushed the power of the cowboys. They're defeated. Why did Wyatt Earp get on a train and go back to San Francisco when the, the whole vendetta was over? Because the cowboys' power was broken. They were still there in the West. They were still a problem, but their power was broken. How much more does the heavenly warrior break the power of Satan? Now, in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12, we read, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers and against authorities, against powers of this dark world and against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Satan is our enemy, not people. We don't want a human heavenly warrior who is going to come and help us. We don't want to fight against governments and authorities to win the day for the gospel. We fight Satan. And we are on the posse of wide earth. We are behind the heavenly warrior who doesn't have a six gun. He has a sword coming out of his mouth to judge the nations. The angels have already bound Satan. He's been stopped and... John says this, Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in them. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes and the pride of life comes not from the Father but the world. The world and its desires pass away, but whoever does the will of God lasts forever. In verse 18 he goes on to say, Dear children, this is the last hour. And that backs up why I think the millennium has already started. The last days is now. The last hour is now, John says. And he says of the last hour, Dear children, this is the last hour, and as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, the, the beast with the mark and all that stuff, yes, there is going to come one who... There have been heaps of people opposing Jesus, but one who is going to come is going to be the worst of all. And that's why it made sense for people to say, was that Hitler? But look what he says here. He says, You have heard that the Antichrist is coming, even though... Even now, many antichrists have come. This is how we know it's the last hour. So the fact that the enemy is fighting against the heavenly wide earth is proof to us that we're in the last hour. And they're going to keep coming and coming and coming. But rather than us trying to diagnose, is this the beginning of the millennium, as in premillennialism, I think a helpful stance for the Christian is to go, bring it on. It's going to keep coming. And it's going to keep getting worse. And that's where amillennialism is the same as premillennialism. The world's going to keep getting worse. And this is how we know it's the last hour. Verse 19, they went out from us, but they didn't really belong to us. For if they belonged to us, they would have remained with us. But their going showed that none of them belonged to us. Unfortunately, a lot of Christians are going to be lost in the last hour. So my encouragement tonight is, if you're with Jesus, Satan has no power over you. He's been bound or he's had his teeth knocked out, whichever image you like more. He's not able to just act with impunity and he's not in control. Jesus is. He's still working his best 
over those who are still trapped in sin. And that's why, as we see, it's important that we continue to set people free with the gospel like Wilma did. So that we can say to people, you don't have to be afraid of the future, you can actually trust that Jesus has it in control. And the best response to evil is to tell people the gospel. Because when they do, the Holy Spirit convicts people that he's real and then the devil has no power over them. And that's why I think we've got to be really careful we don't get caught up into anything else other than the gospel work that Jesus laid down for us in Mark chapter 1, verses 15 and following. The kingdom of heaven has come. Repent and believe the good news. Mission, discipleship. Mission, discipleship. So let's keep watching and keep our lamps burning. But also I want to say super humbly, thank you for listening to my cowboy analogy, particularly you millennials who have no idea what I've been talking about. But I also want to say thank you if you disagree with me tonight for being here and listening. Because let's have a conversation. We're brothers and sisters. And you know what we're going to learn in Ephesians? No one can take us from the hands of Jesus. And no one can destroy the church because the devil has been defeated. And so as we have uh, discussions about stuff it doesn't have to end our relationships it can strengthen them this is not uh, crucial that you believe the same thing as me to be in this church you have permission to be post-millennial pre-millennial I don't care millennial there's a few of us out there that don't even know what all this millennial thing is but I just want to say all of these things as an encouragement to us as a church that the world is getting more and more complicated and if we as a church don't go a bit deeper into the word of God and have good safe conversations with each other we're not going to know how to live here. And that's why we talk about this in Ephesians next week. Amen? Amen.